speaking with a kind of a voice issue is not so bad as singing uh, with a voice problem. Can't hit the all the notes I'd like to hit when, but uh, that may be good sometimes too. Numbers chapter twenty-six tonight uh, or this morning, and we want to look at a new beginning. We have a, a transition between verse chapters twenty-five and verse chapters uh, twenty-five and chapter twenty-six. And it kind of reminds us of the tra- transition that we had. And of course, we all remember this because it was just like yesterday, between chapter 14 and chapter 15. I know a lot of water has gone under the bridge since then. But um, it's uh, for both the Lord uh, moved uh, from judgment to mercy and from punishment to promise. And at Kadesh Barnea and at Baal Peor, Israel had sinned greatly and God had chastened them. But in his grace, he forgave their disobedience and gave them a new start. It's always good to have a new beginning, a new start. And that's what we're going to look at today. Ezra, the scribe, expressed this truth in his prayer of confession when he said, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that thou, our God, hast punished us less than our iniquities deserve and hast given us such deliverance as this. David kind of felt the same way when he wrote, He hath not dealt with us, After our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. In Psalm 103, verse 10. But God has not given us what we deserve. And we can be thankful for that this morning. We are sinners. And we deserve to die. And we we deserve to spend eternity in hell. But God in his grace and his mercy sent his son to this earth to die for our sins and to give us a wonderful home in heaven. That's way more than we deserve. Now as Israel lingered in the plains of Moab, Moses fulfilled four important responsibilities to prepare Israel for that which lay ahead. Now remember, we're moving a little faster in our study here. Uh, In these concluding chapters, we're looking at a variety of truths. And one of the things about these chapters is you'll notice there very quickly there's a lot of names. Well, that's a part of uh, this this book as well, uh, giving us uh, various families and their names and Uh, husbands, the wives, the children, and so forth. And so we're going to look at uh, one of the reasons why this is called the Book of Numbers. And the first reason is the numbering of the soldiers. The numbering of the soldiers. And we find that in chapter 26. By the time Israel had entered the Zerid Valley, back in chapter 21, the old generation had died off except for Moses, Caleb, and Joshua, Very soon Moses would die. Uh, Israel was making a new beginning thanks to the faithfulness and the mercy of God. 
Uh, it was time to take a census of the new generation and start looking toward the future. And we're not going to read this chapter, again, because of all the names, and uh, uh, that would be uh, somewhat tedious this morning, take a lot of our time, but uh, Moses has two purposes here in mind when he takes the second census. As with the first census back in chapter 1, Moses needed to know how many men were available. Those who were 20 years and older who could serve in the army. The second purpose for the census was to get an idea of how much land each tribe would need when Israel settled down in Canaan and claimed their inheritance. And so assigning each tribe its inheritance would be a job for Joshua. Uh, Joshua, as well as Eliezer, the high priest, and the ten leaders representing the tribes that were settling, settling west of the Jordan River. Now notice with me, first of all, the insights from the census. The insights. The census gives us a number of insights, or we could call them reminders. It reminds us the Lord keeps his word. Do you know that? The Lord keeps his word. I'm so thankful that we have a God who keeps his word. He keeps his word of blessing, but he also keeps his word of judgment. And all of those disobedient men who were 20 and older are dead. It reminds us that those without Christ will spend eternity in a place called hell. God will keep his word about his judgment. Say, well, maybe he'll change his mind. No, he's not going to change his mind. He's going to keep his word. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8 says, But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and the sorcerers and the idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So the Lord keeps his word. Secondly, an insight or a reminder is that there is no statute of limitations on sin. Some people think that if judgment is not immediate, there's not going to be a judgment. They think, well, I got away with my sin. I'm not going to have to worry about it. God hasn't done anything to me yet. Peter warned that in the last days there would be people who believed this way. Listen, you do not get away with your sin. Second Peter 3, 3 and 4 says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. But again in Hebrews 9 and verse 27, we're reminded, And is it, appointed, it is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. Time is not a great healer, as some people claim. Judgment for sin does not go away. Time is an opportunity for turning your life around in repentance and then using your life to serve Jesus Christ. So don't waste your life. Time also demands urgency, and the opportunity to seek the Lord is now. Tomorrow may be too late. The third thing we're reminded of here is that there is no security in numbers. 
at the border of the promised land, over 600,000 said, don't go. The majority was wrong because they did not trust and obey God's will for their lives. The Bible warns us that God's way is narrow and few will obey the word of God. Matthew 7 Verse 13 and 14, Enter ye in the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. There's one other reminder here, and that is that God works in quiet ways to fulfill his promise. The whole nation of Israel moved from one area to another through these years, and they lost they lost an entire adult generation yet they maintained spiritual direction this was a miracle god was quietly working behind the scenes preparing them for his will we also find in the new testament this concept in that uh, philippians 1:6 says being confident of this very thing he that which he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of christ So those are some insights from this census that was taken. Notice, secondly, not only some insights, but the inheritance of Christians. The inheritance. In verses, or chapters 26 and 27, we find the word inherit, or inheritance, mentioned 12 times, and it reminds us of our inheritance in Jesus Christ. For Christians, there are several characteristics concerning this inheritance. First of all, there's everlasting life. Matthew 19, 29 says, And every one that hath forsaken houses and brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Not only everlasting life, but we notice the promises of God. Hebrews six twelve that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then thirdly, the blessings of God. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. Sometimes we don't realize the blessing, the inheritance of blessing that we have when we are divided, when we don't have compassion for one another, when we don't love our brethren as we should when we're not courteous, when we're not uh, uh, giving them the love and the concern that they need, we're missing the blessings that God has for us. Fourthly, we find all things. The inheritance for Christians is all things. Revelation 21.7, He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Number five, it is perfect. It's a perfect inheritance. First Peter 1 Peter 1.4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. It's incorruptible. That means it is imperishable. There, nothing can ruin it. Uh, it's undefiled. It's not spoiled. It's not stained. It's not cheapened. 
It fadeth not away. It cannot grow old or wear out. And it's reserved in heaven. It's carefully attended to and guarded. And we notice the down payment of the Holy Spirit. As we studied Ephesians chapter 1 some months ago. Uh, we notice there in verse 13 and 14, In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after ye believed ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. The word earnest there means down payment to guarantee the final purpose purchase of an item. And the Holy Spirit is God's pledge of future blessedness. He is the guarantee that God will complete what he started. And then number seven, we know it's from the Lord. Colossians 3.24, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For ye serve the Lord Christ. Now those are the things that even this census, this numbering should remind us of. And I trust it can be an encouragement to us this morning. But let's move on. Let's look at preparing for the inheritance. Israel had not yet crossed the river. They had not yet entered into the promised land. And yet by faith, Moses was already preparing for the tribes to claim their land. Except for the fulfilling of God's command to wipe out the Midianites... God or Israel would have no more battles until they arrived at Jericho. And though he wasn't allowed to go in himself, Moses invested the closing weeks of his life preparing a new generation to enter Canaan, claim the land of God, promised to give them. But you notice it's a tribal inheritance. In Numbers uh, 26 here in verses 52 through 56. It says there, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Unto these the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of names. To, to many thou shalt give the more inheritance, and to few thou shalt give the less inheritance. To everyone shall his inheritance be given according to those that are numbered of him, notwithstanding the land shall be divided by lot according to the names of the tribes of their fathers, and they shall inherit. According to the lot shall the possession thereof be divided between many and few. It's a tribal inheritance. And once the land had been conquered and God had given his people rest, Joshua, Eliezer, and the ten tribal representatives would cast lots to determine the portion of their tribe's portion of land. Naturally, the size of the tribe would help the establishment of the amount of land they were be assigned. And according to the record in the book of Joshua, some of the tribes gladly received their, accepted their inheritance. They received it and went to work, making it a home. There were those that complained. You always have the complainers, don't you? Some went out and they conquered more territory. Let me ask you a question this morning in relation to what I've just said. Are you just content with what you have as a Christian? Or are you always complaining about things in your life? Or are you a conqueror and desiring to move forward in your Christian life and having victory? That is certainly something to think about, isn't it? 
So there's a tribal inheritance. Secondly, a Levitical inheritance. From the first census to the number, uh, the second, the number of Levites would increase slightly. You might remember that Levites were not given their own territory to possess. They were scattered throughout the nation. There were three reasons for that. <coughs> first of all, it fulfilled Jacob's deathbed prophecy that Levites or Levi's descendants would be distributed throughout the land. Levi and Simeon had been violent in their treatment of the people of Shechem, and Jacob felt it would be safer if his sons, the sons of Levi would be widely dispersed. Secondly, by scattering throughout the land, the Levites had a better opportunity to teach the law to more people and to influence them to be faithful to the Lord. And then thirdly, the Levites were not allowed to inherit property because God was their inheritance. They were privileged to serve God by assisting the priest, and they shared in the sacrifices and the tithes that the people brought to the Lord. But then there was a family inheritance. And this we find in chapter 27. And we find Moses faced with a problem he doesn't know how to answer. Ever had that? A problem you don't know how to answer. Well, Moses approached the five daughters of uh, Zelopaphed, that's in verses 3 and 4, and uh, he's approached by these five daughters and uh, does not know how to answer the problem, and so he goes to the Lord for the answer. Now, if you don't know the answer to a problem, I think we should be not afraid to admit that we don't know. Now, my wife and my children have long accused me of having an answer for everything. Even when they don't want to know the answer. And I've, uh, have you ever asked a question but you really didn't want to know the answer? It seems like I get that from my family quite a bit. They ask a question they don't really want an answer but I give them one. Why? Because I always thought if someone asks a question, they must, must want to answer, right? I'm usually willing to give them one, even if it's not the right answer. But you know, there are times when we face a situation and we don't know the answer. And we should always do our best to find the answer. Maybe someone asks you an answer, a question about the Bible, and you say, I don't know the answer to that. So that should... And motivate us to go and dig, find the answer so that we can be a help to that person who asked that question. So Moses asked God to help him in answering this question, and God confirms that these daughters should receive an inheritance according to verse 7. The daughters of Zelophehad spake. Speak right, and thou shalt surely give them a possession of the inheritance among their father's brethren, and thou shalt cause the inheritance of their father to pass unto them. Now the normal procedure is found back in Deuteronomy chapter 21. The eldest son got a double portion. The daughters got a dowry from the father when they were married. But in order to keep the inheritance of the land of tri- the, in a tribe, the daughters would have to marry within their own tribe so the tribal inheritance would not be depleted. Now the fact that the Lord granted the request of these women showed 
God's attitude toward women. Pagan cultures, and we've talked about this before, how that pagan cultures view women as slaves, sex objects. Women were to be seen and not heard. For example, in the tribes of the Orinoco River in Venezuela, little girls and families are sold to men before they reach the age of 10. Girls are traded like animals. It's a tragic thing. But Satan has launched a vicious attack, an attack upon women ever since the Garden of Eden. And it's an assault of deception and destruction. In pagan countries today, the assault continues in abortion clinics. If there is a limit on children in a family, ever know of a country that would limit the number of children you could have? China. Then the parents tend to abort or abandon their daughters and keep the sons to carry the family name and provide security for themselves in their old age. But the Bible makes it very clear, folks, that God is a God who has elevated the position and gentle treatment of women. The Bible tells us that they are joint heirs with Christ. They're to be honored, not humiliated. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife and unto the weak, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. They're to be cherished and loved. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And then verse 28 says, So men ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. They're to be provided and cared for. According to 1 Timothy 5.8 But if there any provide not for his own, especially those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. The husband is to rejoice with his wife. Proverbs 5.18 Let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Of course, we know Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman is to be praised and highly valued. But a woman who spurns God is like the dog who bites the hand of the one who feeds it. It doesn't make sense. The fact that these girls came to Moses in the first place demonstrated great faith that they had in the Lord and a fearful, reverent boldness to claim their inheritance from the Lord. And I think we should be challenged by their godly example. We're to be a people of faith who ask God for great things. So there's the numbering of the soldiers. There's the preparing for the inheritance. And then there's the dedication or the dedicating of a new leader. And though still physically strong, Moses was now 120 years old. And time had come for him to move off the scene. And he had led the people of Israel faithfully for 40 years. Bearing their burdens, sharing their victories, teaching them God's laws. God and Moses had communed with each other as a friend with friend, and the Lord didn't hide anything from his servant. So we notice, first of all, Moses and the land. Because Moses and Aaron had not honored the Lord at Meribah, they weren't permitted to enter the promised land with a new generation. Moses repeatedly asked God for permission to enter the land, but the Lord refused to allow it. Not only must Moses be disciplined because of his pride and his anger, 
But he must also not mar the type that is expounded on in the book of Hebrews. You see, it isn't the law, Moses, that gives us our spiritual inheritance, but it's Jesus. And you know who's the type of Christ? Joshua. Joshua is the type of Christ. Not Moses. So that brings us to Moses and Joshua. And this you find in verses 15 through 23. As a a successor was to be appointed to take the place of Moses. Someone was to lead the children of Israel. And it had to be a man that was spirit-filled. It was important to recognize the laying on of hands did not make him spirit-filled. Nor did it give him any power. The only thing that it would communicate would be the laying on of hands. I think the only thing you really get from laying on of hands is germs. Do you know that? So what does this succession and partnership here mean? Well, you remember that the church put their hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them out into Antioch. Or from Antioch. Did that give them power when they laid their hands on them? No. Not at all. The power comes from the Holy Spirit of God. It was to show that this church was acknowledging their association with these two men in the missionary enterprise. That is the meaning of the laying on of hands. There is no power that's given through that. Joshua was the successor of Moses, and after Moses laid down the work Joshua picked it up and it's a wonderful study to look through the book of Joshua and learn a great deal about this man it's been a number of years since we've gone through the book of Joshua but Joshua really was just an average man he was an average man that had faith in God was faithful to God and God can use a man like that so that brings us to focusing on worship From the very beginning, the secret of Israel's success was their relationship with the Lord, characterized by faith and obedience. The Jews were God's covenant people, chosen by him to do his will, ultimately bring the Redeemer into the world. And once Israel was settled in the land, they had to be careful to follow instructions, for they worshipped the Lord God Almighty. The pagan nations around them would invent all kinds of of worship, different forms of worship, but Israel had to bring the right sacrifices at the right time in the right way, or the Lord would not bless them. And some of the instructions are given here. Some of these instructions had already been given at Mount Sinai, while others were new. But the basis for their worship was the calendar of special days outlined in Leviticus 23, beginning with the weekly Sabbath and ending with the annual Feast of the Tabernacles. And so here in chapters 28 and 29, you notice there's a phrase that's used a number of times. If you read that, you'll find the phrase, a sweet savor. It's used seven times. And each of the offerings had a different purpose to fulfill, but ultimately it was to please God, to delight his heart, to be a sweet savor to the Lord. There were daily sacrifices. That's what we find here in chapter 28. Each morning and each evening, the priests were to offer a lamb as a burnt offering. And this is a new instruction that was 
uh, was that on the Sabbath days they were to offer two lambs each morning and evening. The burnt offering typified total dedication to the Lord. And we should begin and we should end each day by giving ourselves completely to the Lord. Let me just even go a step farther than that. Even though I cannot say that this is the literal meaning of this, I'm going to make an application here. And I think it's appropriate. You know, we set apart one day a week for rest and worship for the Lord. Now, in, the, in following New Testament instruction, the example we uh, no longer observe Sabbath, okay? But we do observe Sunday, the first day of the week. That is our day to give to the Lord. And here in the Old Testament, they were not only to make sacrifices in the morning and the evening on a daily basis, but they were to make two sacrifices in the morning and the evening on the Sabbath. Now, if we're not observing the Sabbath, but we're observing the Lord's Day, Sunday, could it not be this is why so many times we have a service Sunday morning and Sunday evening? I don't know. That could be. May I suggest that we are to present ourselves to the Lord morning and evening on a daily basis, but on Sunday, that second sacrifice is to be faithful to the services of the local church. And I might add that God delights in such sacrifices, and they are a sweet-smelling savor unto him. By the way, I think there is some biblical precedence for Sunday evening services. So many churches have gone away from them. If you remember, there was a young man that fell out the window while Paul was preaching. That was Sunday night, by the way. <laughs> and, pre- and Paul wasn't a short preacher. He was a short man, but he wasn't not a short preacher. He was a long preacher. Because it tells us there in Acts that he was long preaching, and this man fell out of the window. Well, be that as it may, I think uh, Sundays are to be given to the Lord. And so we need to honor the Lord, not only daily, but especially on the Lord's day. Then there were monthly sacrifices. That's what we find in verses 11 through 15. This was a new instruction. The Jewish people followed the lunar calendar and a new moon And they joyfully celebrated by the nation as a whole, as well as by individual families. On the first of every month, along with the daily continual burnt offerings, the peace would offer an additional burnt offering that comprised of two young bulls, a ram, and seven male lambs, a year old, along with the proper meal offerings and drink offerings. You say, well, we don't have to do that anymore, do we? No, the sacrifices are gone. The one sacrifice has been once and for all. But here we have, this was the instructions given to the people of Israel as they came into this land. It was a new start. It was a new beginning for them. And then there were the annual sacrifices. And you uh, read uh, chapter 28 and even chapter 29, you find there's five different annual events. There's the Passover, feast celebrated Uh, uh, Israel's exodus from Egypt marked the beginning of the nation's uh, religious year. For us as Christians, Passover speaks of the death of Christ on the cross. Then there's the Pentecost. 
That's in verses 26 through 30. That's a celebrating 50 days after Passover. In the New Testament, it marks the, the empowering of the church by the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's the Feast of Trumpets in chapter 29. Today, the Jews are a scattered people. But one day, the trumpet will sound to call them back to their land and prepare them for the return of the Messiah. The trumpet will sound for believers, and it's going to announce the return of Christ at the rapture. And then there's the Day of Atonement, chapter 29, verses 7 through 11. The Israel's highest and holiest day when people fasted and abstained from all work. The ritual of the Day of Atonement pictures the work of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for our sins. And then the Feast of Tabernacles in verses 12 through 39. This feast would last, would be five days after the Day of Atonement and looks forward to the time when God will fulfill the kingdom promises and make Israel and the nation to rejoice in their bountiful, beautiful land. Now let me say that believers today can learn at least three practical lessons from these offerings. Even though we don't offer these offerings anymore, there are lessons here for us to learn. First of all, all of them are fulfilled in Christ. The blood of animals can never take away the sin, but the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. These sacrifices had to be repeated on a regular schedule, but the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at Calvary accomplished eternal salvation once and for all. Secondly, the nation could not have functioned without the ministry of the priest. They represented the people before God. They offered sacrifices that were required today. Jesus Christ is our high priest. There is one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. He's our advocate. He's our mediator. And then thirdly, the sacrifices were very expensive. You say, what's a few what's a few rams, a few goats? Well, if you thought how many times they would be offering these these sacrifices, the people would bring in their own personal worship. The greater number of lambs slain at Passover each year, the priest would offer 113 bulls, 32 rams, 1,086 lambs. It was expensive. And if today God's people were under the law, how much more would we do who have experienced the grace of God. I wonder this morning, are you demonstrating to God your love and appreciation to him by being faithful in your daily walk to him, with him? Do you spend time Bible reading and and, in prayer each day? Are you faithful to the services of a Bible-believing local church? I say, you say, well, I don't have time for every service. I told you these sacrifices were expensive. Folks, we are, have time for the things we make time for. Are you faithful in giving to the work of God? Are you faithful to tithe your income and then give above and beyond when the Spirit speaks to you about a need? Now, your money doesn't go to an organization. It's going to God. It's not just a tax deduction. 
It's laying up treasures in heaven. And how thankful we should be that the ancient sacrificial system has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have the privilege of coming into the presence of God anytime, day or night, through a new and living way. And as the priests of God, we can bring to him our spiritual sacrifices, our bodies. We can present our bodies to him. We can present people one to Christ. We can give money and material gifts. We can give worship and praise. We can give good works. We can give a broken and contrite heart and and believing prayer. We need to imitate David and not give to the Lord that which costs us nothing. He said the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. I trust that even as we have looked at this, and I encourage you to go back and read these chapters with these things in mind. The lessons we learn from the numbering of the soldiers, the preparing for the inheritance Meditate upon the inheritance that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The dedication of a new leader. A man to lead these these people to their new land. And he was a man that was used greatly of God. And then the focus on worship. The sacrifices. Daily, monthly, annual. What does it mean for us? Are we willing to give some expensive sacrifices, some things that maybe uh, give more time that we have, haven't given. Even giving the, uh, again, money's not given to this church, it's given to God. By God's grace, we'll use it for his glory. But most of all, we bring to him our spiritual sacrifices, our bodies, people one to Christ, Worship and praise, good works, a broken and a contrite heart, and believing prayer. Let's pray.